Today's reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 22. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who were ill. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and the countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About five thousand men were there. But he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is God's word. Let me uh, pray and we'll look at Luke 9 together. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the king we need who gives us the mission our lives long for. Help us to see that clearly tonight. Amen. Well, we're diving back into Luke's gospel. We've been away for a month or two, and we're going back into Luke's gospel. And he explained right at the very start of his gospel what his purpose was. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, I don't know about you, but when big decisions come along, I want to know that they're grounded in solid facts. I want to know that the, the government's scientific advisory group has the very best brains and no political bias. I want to know that decisions about uh, lockdown and social distancing are taken on something slightly more solid than, well, this is our best guess. And so on the biggest decision of all, whether you trust in Jesus Christ as God and follow him in your life, whether you pin your eternal hopes on him, on this biggest decision of all, Luke did the hard work for us in the first century, tracking down, interviewing the eyewitnesses and investigating the events. And then he created this careful, scholarly, historically reliable account, an account that has withstood 20 centuries of skeptical bombardment and forensic cross-checking of historical details. And whether you're currently uh, unconvinced but thinking through the claims of Jesus Christ, or, or whether you're happy to label yourself a Christian, we all need what Luke provides here. Because we'll only put our trust in Jesus Christ, and we'll only follow and serve him when it starts to cost us. If we are absolutely certain that he is who he claims to be, if we are certain that his eternal promises are reliable, not just pie in the sky, it needs to be uh, credible, trustworthy, true, if you and I are to give our lives to it. Now, chapter nine takes us to the end of the first phase of Jesus' public ministry. From chapter four onwards, Jesus has been in his home region of Galilee up in the north, and right from the start, the question has arisen, who is he? Sometimes it's been asked uh, with wonder, who on earth can do things like that? Sometimes it's been asked with scorn, who do you think he is saying something like that? But the question is built and built and built, as Luke has recorded with meticulous detail all that Jesus said and did in those early chapters. With every miraculous healing, and every message that he taught, the picture is built up until it reaches the climax at the end of our passage in verses 18 to 20. Once when Jesus was praying in a private place, his disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. What about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Messiah or Christ, it's exactly the same word. Now, it may well mean nothing to you. You may have thought Christ was Jesus' surname, but it was very different for the Jews of Jesus' day. Uh, for some of us, it's, it's like hearing, she's a Jedi, a Skywalker. I mean, if you haven't seen Star Wars, so what? Or he is Isildur's heir. I mean, if you've never seen Lord of the Rings, then good for you. We may feel like that about Messiah, but for a, for a Jewish person in Jesus' day, it was very different. It was everything. You see, all of God's promises focused on the Messiah. All of God's promises in the Old Testament that he would undo the curse of sin and death that afflicts our world. All of his promises that he would come to rescue us 
All of the promises of the entire Old Testament of the Bible are focused on this character, the Messiah, the anointed king. And Luke wants us to see Jesus is this Messiah. But that's not all. When you see Peter's declaration in verse 20, you're the Messiah, in the light of what has come just before it in chapter 9, you realize that the Messiah wants us not just to recognize who he is. Oh, okay, he's the Messiah. No, he wants us to do more than recognize who he is. He wants us to join his movement. Jesus calls us, first of all, look, receive life and forgiveness from me. That's what he calls us to do through believing in him. But then having received... He sends us out and tells us to spread the good news of the kingdom so that others too might come and receive life from him. And throughout this section, we we really see uh, two themes. Uh, Jesus empowers his followers to spread his kingdom. He empowers his followers to spread his kingdom. And then secondly, those who hear about Jesus need to respond rightly to him. Those who hear need to respond rightly. Uh, Firstly, Jesus empowers us to spread the kingdom. The first section of the passage, verses one to five. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who were ill. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now, up to this point, it has been Jesus doing the preaching and the healing. The king has been spreading the kingdom, but now for the first time we see he's not going to do it all himself. He is recruiting followers to share the work of the kingdom. Actually, it's a pattern that we see develop. Uh, We've just seen Luke 9, 1. Listen to Luke 8, 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So 8, 1, it's Jesus doing it. 9, 1, same same thing is happening, but it's the 12. And then 10, 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Uh, The pattern spreads. He's recruiting people to share the work of the kingdom. Now, his instructions are pretty simple. Travel light, stay where you're welcomed, and depart from any place you're rejected. That's his instructions. And their mission, preach the good news. That's the gospel. Preach the good news about Jesus. And demonstrate that the gospel means the arrival of the kingdom of God. Demonstrate it by driving out evil and driving out sickness. For the king has come to establish a kingdom of goodness, of justice, of life. He's come to make the world the way God always intended it would be. This kingdom of Jesus Christ is a kingdom you and I want to be part of. He's describing the world that we want, a world without evil, a world without sickness and suffering and death. Jesus has come to make that a reality. Okay, how much of this, uh, this mission that he entrusts to the 12 applies to you and me today? Well, we must be careful. When Luke records uh, Jesus' command to the 12 after his resurrection, it's very different. In Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now it's about witnessing to, telling others about what Jesus has done. 
Secondly, the shaking of the dust off the feet. That too, I think, is a specific thing for the people of Israel. You see, they'd had 1,500 years. I don't know why I'm showing five. 1,500 years of God sending his prophets to tell them about the coming Messiah so that they would be ready to receive God's king and turn to him to receive life and forgiveness. So this is the end of century after century of God holding out hope patiently to a stubborn people. I don't think we're, we're to apply this if my family and my friends reject my encouragement to, to find out more about Jesus Christ. We should show the same patience to our loved ones and our friends that God shows to the Israelites. Uh, thirdly, likewise, the healing of uh, sickness and the casting out of the demons. <coughs> Now, if you look through the rest of the New Testament and you study church history, what you find is that quite often when the news about Jesus Christ goes into a new people group, a new place, uh, amazing things happen. There are often miracles. But there's never any promise that we will be able to heal all sickness miraculously now, whenever we want to. Those things were a signpost of what the new creation when Jesus returns will be like and a demonstration that he really has the power so that we know we can trust him that when he returns and transforms the world, it'll be a world worth being in. Okay, those are things that I I don't think apply to us, but there is a principle that we see here that is backed up by the rest of the New Testament. And the principle that we see here is that Jesus has entrusted the spread of his kingdom to ordinary people like you and me. Jesus has entrusted the spread of his kingdom to ordinary people like you and me. And just as importantly, he provides the power for us to do it. Uh, You see it is Jesus' power when you look at at the following verses. So verse six, um, they were healing people everywhere. His, his commission to them was effective. Verse seven, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying John, that's John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Now notice Herod doesn't hear amazing things about the 12 disciples. It's him, Jesus, that he wants to see. The disciples may be healing sick people and driving out demons left, right, and center, but it's very, very clear to everybody that it is Jesus' power that is enabling them to do these things. The kingdom of Jesus is spreading by the power of Jesus, not by the power of Peter and John and Bartholomew and Thomas. This is the thing. Jesus empowers us to spread his kingdom. And we also see here uh, the need to respond to Jesus. Those who hear need to respond. See, the disciples are not putting out a religious podcast in case people are bored and need something to fill their time. They are proclaiming the good news, verse 6, of the kingdom of God, verse 2. The announcement that the king has arrived requires a response. Some will welcome the arrival of the king, verse 5. Come to serve him, bow to him. Others, verse 6, will reject him. And Herod, I think, provides a great warning to us in this. Uh, He seems intrigued by Jesus. He's he's certainly keen to find out more, to meet Jesus. But verse 9 tells us, look, he beheaded John the Baptist. He's amazed by the, the remarkable miracles. 
But if a man of God says things that Herod finds objectionable, that go against the life he wants to live, then he's quite happy to get rid of them. Any sane, rational individual can tell Jesus is no ordinary man. The question is, will I acknowledge that Jesus is the king? Perhaps more pointedly, will I acknowledge he is my king? Will I submit to following his rule, especially when it will cost me? When following him means I might lose things I really, really want to hold on to. That's not just an issue for people weighing up the claims of Jesus, wondering whether to become a Christian. We Christians need to ask, how well am I following when it costs me? So Jesus' followers are to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. That is, we're to tell others about Jesus. Now, I know many of us will feel we're not very good at doing that. We feel inadequate. Sometimes we feel embarrassed to speak about Jesus. Quite often we feel intellectually outgunned when we talk to other people about him. But we're to do so trusting that he provides the power for the spread of the kingdom. Now, you might think, I can't. I can't convince somebody to follow Jesus. But I'm guessing as, as Jesus gave this command to the, the 12, you know, Peter may have thought, I can't, I can't enable somebody who's born blind to see again or a paralyzed person to walk. No, of course he couldn't. But it was Jesus who would provide the power. And it's Jesus who provides the power for the spread of the kingdom as we speak about him with others. So we find ways to tell others if we believe that. Not just sharing that this is our hope, but also gently finding ways to challenge people that they need to respond themselves to the claims of King Jesus. That they can't ignore what he says. And we do so confident that there is nothing in this world so good as to put your trust in King Jesus and to receive the life and the healing that he offers and the promise of spending eternity in his beautiful kingdom. So Jesus sends out his people with power to share the good news of the kingdom and with power to live it out. And secondly, Jesus empowers us to bring rescue and life. We see the same principle actually at work as we get to the feeding of the 5,000 in the second part of the passage. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle to appear in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's important to ask two questions. Firstly, why is it that it appears in all four Gospels? Why is it so special? And secondly, what in particular does Luke emphasize as he explains what happens on that remarkable day? Now, the Gospels are a bit like holiday photos. Do you remember holidays? Oh, weren't they wonderful? Uh, If you look through the holiday snaps posted by uh, four different friends who went on the same holiday together, You'll notice that they have different emphases and and focus on different things. Perhaps one is a foodie and obsessively photographs every single meal that you have. Uh, Another uh, loves sunsets, and so every sunset is is catalogued in their pictures. Another loves buildings. Um, There's bound to be one that's just a catalogue of selfies, I imagine. But uh, it's, it's not four different holidays, just four perspectives on the same holiday. That's what you get in the four gospel accounts. Not four different Jesuses but four perspectives on the one true Jesus. Now, some events are so amazing, some places are so amazing, that everybody and anybody who goes there will take a picture. I mean, if your holiday's near the Grand Canyon, everybody, whatever their particular passions in life, will have a picture of the Grand Canyon. 
So what is it about the feeding of the 5,000 that makes it the Grand Canyon moment for the Gospels? Well, for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was unmissable because it was an echo of the Exodus. It was an echo of the Exodus. Now, Exodus may mean no more to you than Messiah, but it was the foundational event for the Jewish people, for the Israelites. What had happened was 1,500 years earlier, God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt where they were being worked to death. And he'd led his people through the wilderness to the promised land. And in the wilderness, he'd miraculously fed them when there was no food. Uh, The word actually for wilderness that's used in verse 12 is exactly the same word that's used to describe the wilderness that the Israelites traveled through in the Exodus. And as Jesus feeds 5,000 men, who knows how many people total in the crowd, in the wilderness, he is demonstrating that he is the one who would bring about the new exodus, the true exodus, the ultimate exodus, rescue from slavery to sin and rescue from the eternal death that we face. That's why they all include it. Now, Luke's particular emphasis, what is it that Luke picks up on that the others don't? where he emphasizes how Jesus empowers the disciples to bring about the Exodus rescue. That's why I wanted to wait until I now before reading it. Notice how he emphasizes the disciples' role. Verse 12. So late in the afternoon, the 12 came up to him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we've only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The disciples, the disciples, the disciples. Jesus feeds the crowd through the disciples. Okay, so what's the point for us? Well, his point here, the point Luke is making is that Jesus has come about, come to bring about the exodus that we need He's come to rescue us from slavery to our destructive, sinful habits and desires and the self-serving behavior which cuts us all off from God. And that means that every one of us faces eternal death, that great lurking fear. He has come to feed us in the wilderness too. That is, he will sustain us through all the hardships we face as we follow him in this world and bring us safely to his eternal paradise. And that this rescue, this forgiveness and life, this true exodus that Jesus has come to bring about in his death and resurrection, this exodus is obtained, it's available to to anybody as ordinary followers of Jesus share the message of Jesus, speaking words about his life, his death and his resurrection. Jesus works with extraordinary power to bring exodus rescue as ordinary people speak ordinary words about the hope Jesus brings. In other words, uh, if we follow Jesus, we're to be like aid station workers in a famine. Yet we can't create food for for the enormous crowds of starving people. But if the government sends an aid truck, we have the privilege of distributing the food to the starving masses, bringing them life. 
And as we do that, as we tell others the good news about Jesus, people come to him, verse 17, and are satisfied. You see, Jesus came not just to save people, but to satisfy us. All our thirst and longing for God, all our thirst and longing for a transcendent experience, all our deep soul craving for forgiveness and life, all of it is fully satisfied as we come to know Jesus Christ. He has come to give life to the full. So step off the sidelines and join the movement. That's the call of this passage. Step off the sidelines and join the movement. The king has come to call a people. He calls us to recognize he is the rightful king of me and of you. Uh, The picture here of following Jesus, though, is of joining a rowing crew, not a passenger jet. He recruits us to serve To follow this king is is not to tick a box, get baptized, turn up to church, or these days log into church on a Sunday. It is to join a movement, serving Jesus with all we have for the good of others. I spoke um, a week or so ago to to one of the medics at church who's serving on a coronavirus ward, and they were saying how hugely frustrating it was. And they became a medic because they wanted to, to make people better. But they said, look, the truth is there is no cure. There's not a lot we can do. We hook people up to a ventilator, make them comfortable, try to help them as best we can, but we haven't got a cure. And that was a hugely difficult thing to come to terms with as a, as a highly competent and very well-trained and resourced medic. Actually, I think the rest of us probably feel rather different about their efforts. We don't think that their efforts are pointless at all, but it must be so frustrating The King Jesus calls us to join his mission to bring life and hope to dying people. But he also provides us with all the power to save everyone. Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus can know forgiveness for sins and eternal life forever. King Jesus calls you to come and join his his mission. And he provides you with what you need. You can bring forgiveness and power to uh, to people who are weighed down by guilt. You can bring cleansing and washing to people who feel just filthy because of what they've done. You can provide hope and life to those who are burdened with anxiety and, and filled with fear about what the future might hold. You can bring light and hope to those who are struggling in darkness. You can bring to those who are crushed by failure, to those in pain and grieving, comfort, and hope for the future. And you can do all those things because as you speak ordinary words, telling them about Jesus Christ, about his death and resurrection, they meet Jesus, the real Jesus in his words. And they meet him with all his life-giving, sin-forgiving, death-defeating power. So don't, don't sit out this mission because of fear or indifference or worldliness lack of confidence, or just busyness and distraction. God has chosen to use us, to use you in his plan of salvation. And God has given you all you need to be effective in this mission, this great purpose. Tonight, if you've never done it before, you can come to Jesus and receive forgiveness and eternal life from the King. And tomorrow morning, for those who do trust in him, you have a fresh chance to live for the most fulfilling, most satisfying, most valuable, meaningful cause of all, spreading the good news of the king who has come to bring life. 
King Jesus empowers our lives with a mission and a purpose of eternal importance. And he provides the power to make these things a reality. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for King Jesus and the hope that he brings. Help us, we pray, to trust in him. But just as much, help us, we pray, to trust that he provides the power we need to serve him. Amen.